Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ference, and this is episode number 24. So I was chatting with my good friend, Corey Britz, the other day. We always have a great rant about something or other. Anyway, our chat that day inspired today's intro a little bit. He was sitting at the piano, and he played this chord. It's a good one. And it sparked this idea. So on that note, or notes, sorry, couldn't help myself, let's talk about context. You can't take everything that happens in your career at face value. Sometimes a win is not as great an opportunity as it seems. And sometimes a loss is not as bad as it looks. Everything in your life and your career has to be put in proper context for you to understand if it's working for or against you. So what is the proper context? The proper context is how something fits with your long-term plan and your long-term goals. That's the only thing that matters. The immediate impact of an event might not be the same if you look at it in the context of your full career. We've all had moments in our careers where we were convinced that we've had a big break or potentially made a career-ending mistake. Well, what happens when that big break doesn't pan out? It feels devastating. Or what if that mistake leads you to meet a new person or learn a new skill? It's all of a sudden not so bad anymore. At the time things happen, they can be super energizing or equally defeating. But eventually, you'll look back to realize that whatever happened was just part of your journey. Every career has as many bumps as it does highlights. So the sooner you start looking at the things that happen in your life in the context of your full story, the sooner you'll A, be able to learn from them, and B, stop putting too much weight on singular events. People place a lot of emphasis on individual events, and they probably let them affect their mental state a little bit too much. But events are not the only thing you need to try to keep in context. Maybe you've been doing a job for several years and you're feeling super comfortable. Step back and look at where that job takes you down the road. Is it in line with the life you want to live later? I can speak from experience on this one. I had several great jobs. They kept me satisfied, they kept me challenged, and they kept me paid. All good things. But one day, when I was finally able to objectively step back and look at where I wanted to go and where some of those jobs were taking me, I saw that those things were not in line, and I knew that I had to start working towards leaving those jobs. So I'm not telling you to run out and quit your job. Don't do that. The point I'm trying to make is that even if your current situation is going smoothly, you should still give it a checkup every once in a while to be sure it's in line with your goals. These are hard decisions to make, and even harder realizations to come to. That's why you need to start practicing this habit now. You need to learn to be able to be objective to your own situation even when you're deep in it. 
try to put what's going on around you into the context of your full career. If you do that, you'll probably find yourself less worried about individual events and more focused on the compounding gains and knowledge that you're making every day. So before we walk away from context, you need to remember to put your interactions with others in context as well. Everybody's affected by things. You might have a bad interaction with a client or a collaborator, or hey, maybe even a stranger. What's the context of their experience? That negative interaction might have nothing to do with you. Before you judge them or write them off, try to put a little thought into their situation and what the context might be there. Okay, so back to that piano chord. F major seven, add nine, I think, if my music theory serves me correctly. It's a really great voicing. It feels satisfying and relaxing. But here's a couple of the intervals in that chord taken out of context. Alone, they are some of the most dissonant intervals in music. But within the context of the full voicing, they are doing exactly what they're meant to do. So try to keep that in mind and try to put everything in the context of the big picture. Today's guest is Los Angeles-based producer, composer, and artist Matt Lang. Matt has made a name for himself in the electronic music world, both as an artist and as a producer. He's done work with Deadmau5, BT, and Glenn Morrison, as well as work for films and games, including names like Blade Runner 2049, Ready Player One, and The Fast and the Furious. Along with all that, he releases his own music on his label Isorhythm, and his most recent release titled Isolated is out now. So welcome to the show, Matt Lang. What's up, Matt? Hey, thanks for having me. Good yeah. to be here. Thanks for joining us today. Yep. Absolutely. So I was um I was prepping for this and and kind of, you know, doing some research and I was listening to Isolated. And so the basic concept of this record that you put out last year is that it's the story of the pandemic through music, essentially, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, in a way, it's funny when I listen back to it now and it's still, it's very raw when I hear it. So it's really, uh, for me, it's a journey of my own psyche for basically six months. It's really cool. I enjoyed it. And if you're Anybody that goes to listen to it, make sure you look at the name of the song <laughs> while you're listening to it, because it like, you really hit home on all yeah. of them. I was like, what? I was looking at it, looking at the name and I was like, yeah, that really sums, that sums it up. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause I wrote them pretty much as those events happened. Okay. So kind of the initial process, I didn't know this was going to be an album. Uh, I mean, frankly, I, who thought the pandemic was going to go on for, I mean, we're going in on a year now. Yeah. So, you know, I optimistically thought it'll be over by June. No big deal. So I'm just going to, you know, do this thing where I'm going to write music every week and write and release it every week. Therefore, like everything was super fresh and super raw. And I would literally just take whatever, you know, the big story of that week was, write that. And then five days later, it was already out on iTunes and everything like that. That's awesome. I was going to ask you if you were releasing them as you went. So that that's cool. Yeah, the first half of the record was done like that. And then <laughs> it was impossible to uh, keep up with that kind of release schedule. It just... <laughs> It was killing me, <laughs> but to do two tracks, you know, to write and record and, you know, release two tracks every week for, I think we did it eight, uh, yeah, eight weeks straight. I mean, it Damn. was, and some of them are, you know, some of them are vocal tracks, which is a lot more work than just, you know, some cinematic scorey kind of thing. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. 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 It was, it was intense. I got through most of it. I got to finish, uh, I guess I got to finish the year. I got a few <laughs> weeks left, but, uh, I really enjoyed it. So I'm, I'm Thank stoked you. that I found that. As an electronic musician, but also a multi-instrumentalist, probably easy for you to be like left alone in a room by yourself to create. How was that time for you? Were you creative or were you fighting it a little bit? I know a lot of people were not really creative. I mean, 
No, I mean, initially I was super inspired. Yeah. Because I had nothing else to do. Suddenly, I mean, I'm literally isolated from everybody. My family's back in New York. I live by myself. And, you know, when this thing really started, we weren't seeing each other. You know, we were really like, we didn't know how to adapt to this yet. Yeah. So the only thing I know how to do really when anything goes wrong in my life is I pick up a guitar or, you know, I sit at the piano and I write. So this was pretty, uh, pretty natural, I guess. Uh, and then it was just, it was odd because for the first time, probably in my, you know, certainly in a very long time in my adult life, I had nothing else going on. <laughs> I, I mean, everything, everything shut down. I had been on the road. I was touring every weekend for two months up to the pandemic. And suddenly like everything was gone, like Hollywood shut down. So there was no more, cause I do a lot of work in movie trailers. There was no more work there. So suddenly it's like, well, you're screwed. You, there is zero work if you're an artist right now <laughs> and you can't go anywhere. So it's like, what do you do? Make a bunch of music. Yeah, exactly. So you've been doing a lot of touring of your own, your own music? Yeah, well, I mean, I've toured as a DJ for over a decade now. Okay. And that, that was something I never planned on. Years and years ago, I worked for a dance music producer and that kind of opened up the doors into the dance music world for me, which is something I was never really aware of. It wasn't really a genre of music I knew much about, but working for somebody else, suddenly I was really exposed to a lot of it and these doors opened. I made a track, it got played on the radio and suddenly I started having gig offers and it was, and suddenly I had record deals and it was a very odd thing because I still thought like, wait, you know, I'm just making music on the computer and people like, and they, and they hate guitars, first of all, which I remember getting in fights about it because the, I'd get in fights with A&Rs like, you can't have a guitar in a dance music or in a club record. I'm like, why not? It sounds great. Because it's a guitar, you can't do it. <laughs> and like, here I am like, you know, the kid inside of me is dying because right. like my, my favorite thing when I was a kid was Metallica. Yeah. So that's what I view. You know, that's what I will always think is cool is, you know, guys on stage with long hair, like headbanging and like stacks of just, you know, Yngwie Momstein stacks of amps and everything like that. That to me is like in my childish brain, amazing. But anyway, so yeah, so I was, I was suddenly in this dance music world and touring and that kind of became a day job in a way for me where suddenly I was getting paid to do this. Right. And it allowed me to ultimately move out to LA and, you know, I could like, I guess go away for, sometimes I'd be away every weekend for say three months straight. Other times I wouldn't go away at all for two months. But being able to do that allowed me to kind of, you know, make what other music I wanted elsewhere. Right. I haven't worked with a lot of DJs. I've had a few conversations with people off and on, but it sounds exhausting when you're really getting those decent shows. You're flying all over the place, getting to different it's, cities. Is it's it, awful. It, it, it destroys you. <laughs> What's it? Um, well, that, that sums it up. It really, because you're, again, I, I've, I'm used to being isolated, I suppose, because when I travel, I was isolated. It was just me, airport, hotel, club. You say hello to a promoter, but I mean, half the time, they're not even real people. And then right. you go back to the hotel and then you just fly again. But it's super late hours. You're eating terribly. You're probably drinking. I mean, it's really like it takes a number on you. Well, it's, and there's no crew, right? You're maybe a laptop or two. No. and <laughs> You don't need backline. You know, it's so minimal. It's so easy. Yeah. yeah. Do you miss it a little bit now that you haven't done it or now that you haven't done it for a year? Um, I don't miss the act of DJing itself. Yeah. I miss being in front of a crowd just yeah. because I, I love performing. That's something I've just always been drawn to. Um, and I, I miss the travel because then I got to see friends in all these different cities. Yeah. And I have family in different cities too. So, th I mean, my favorite part of all this was ultimately my community around it and being able to see 
basically friends and family. That's amazing. I don't travel a ton for work, but I have found that the more you travel, the smaller the world gets. And you mm. realize that like you can run into buddies on the, you know, on the corner in New York that you didn't know were there. You must have had that happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I always encourage uh, people to get out of their hometown. Yes. I mean, I, I think it's important to everyone's got to move away from their hometown. I really think that's important. You can go back. Oh, yeah, yeah. You have to leave once. But you got to leave at least once and live somewhere else just so you know what you're missing. I mean, because I grew up in New York City. And in my mind, and then I, I mean, obviously, because we both went to Berkeley, then, yeah. you know, we were in Boston. But I always thought, and I still do think, actually, New York is the best city in the world. I personally don't want to live there anymore, but it's the best city in the world. But having grown up there, New York is normal. So all I knew was why did... If I where I, I'd go somewhere else and everywhere else was just worse than New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I could see that. With the exception of LA. LA is its own animal. And you know, I I'm never leaving LA. It's but, it's yeah. uncategorizable Los Angeles. It's um it's got the best and the worst of everything. It does. <laughs> you know what's funny? <laughs> like, um so you grew up in New York. Yeah. And from what I understand, you play a bunch of instruments. You just confess that you you love Metallica and Ingve Momstein. So I don't love Ingve, but you know, <laughs> you can, I mean, okay. So you can, re, you, you got a respect for it. It's got a thing, you know? Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. So what's your musical story? What got you to show up at Berkeley and study music synthesis? Well, um, going way back, my parents had me at a piano when I was four or five years old or something like that. I never wanted to uh, practice though. Cause I was a kid and I wanted to go outside and play. Sounds like a kid. Right. So tragically to this day, my cue skills are really quite lacking. And I really wish I had practiced, but, you know, priorities. And then probably like one of the first bad decisions that I made because of women in my life, I decided to start playing flute when I was seven. And that lasted about a year. Um, <laughs> but then I also joined a boy choir and I sung in a boy choir for six or seven years. And that was, you know, that was really intense because that was performing in front of a crowd called, I guess, a, what do you call it? I'm I'm not religious, so not not an audience, but a congregation. Congregation, yeah. that's the one. All right. So basically performing in front of a congregation every week. So I got very used to, you know, being in front of a crowd from a very young age. Yeah. And even like with the choir, we sung at Carnegie Hall once and then I did an off-Broadway thing. And um, so, I, I mean, I've really, I've been performing my whole life and cool. I love it. I'm probably much more comfortable in front of a crowd than being by myself, ironically. So anyway, when my voice changed, then I picked up the guitar and that turned into just pure obsession. And, nice. you know, practicing all the time and, you know, all, before, you know, when you're in a boy choir, you know, even like playing flute, it's all classical music and secular music and whatnot. But I'm like, man, I, I want to play Inner Sandman, you know, <laughs> like I think <laughs> stuff like that, you know, it's and, right. Uh, right. And then I think also, yeah, Marilyn Manson's The Beautiful People. That was one of the first one. That's how I discovered Drop D. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and tritones, I guess, also. I mean, they're all the metal records of tritones. Yeah. But yeah, so that turns into me eventually being in a high school band and we were kind of like a, a hardcore punk thing, but we also really liked post-rock, like explosions in the sky. Our genre was teenage innovators of post, post, post hardcore. <laughs> so silly, but we, we, we thought we were onto something and to be fair, you know, I listen still back to some of those demos that we did way back when. And you know, it's pretty, uh, I hear myself in it still, you know? So because of that, I started getting into production and I wanted to be able to basically be able to like record my own demos to, bring to the band and then you know we could try to turn them into real songs 
I was naive enough to believe that they would actually want to do that. And, and I remember once even like I transcribed 13 pages in like Sibelius of like all the, you know, everyone's part. And they just like, they, they told me to fuck off because like, <laughs> uh, you just wrote all the music for us. And I said, I know it's great. Listen to so, it. <laughs> so that's when I realized I, you know, being in a band by myself is probably the best thing to do. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, back then, I mean, I was using like, uh, I was recording a DI or that's what it was. Um, my parents had got me a, a Behringer V amp, which was like a line six pod knockoff. Yeah. 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 And I was tracking that into, uh, just straight into like the mic input onto a laptop. And then programming beats and Fruity Loops, exporting an MP3 out of that and putting that into Acid Pro. So then I could, because you couldn't do audio, I guess, in Fruity Loops. And this is like Fruity Loops version one, or I mean, it was still called Fruity Loops. Right. And this is, you know, 20 years ago or something like that. But basically I would, yeah, record then the guitars direct through the V-amp into Acid and then start kind of editing everything in Acid. And, uh, and then I got really into also during that time, like I was aware of Nine Inch Nails before. Yeah. But suddenly the fragile hit me in a way that I didn't understand before. And um, just the way it was like the hybrid of, you know, real instruments with electronic production around it. And that was something that still, and, and also Aphex Twin, that's also when I got into like IDM. So I was really into this, you know, complex programming as well as, you know, real instruments. And there's like a heaviness to it, of course. But that was kind of that, this aesthetic that it's funny because then I kind of got away from it for a while. And then now basically what I do is not that dissimilar to that. Yeah. And uh, so it's interesting to see things come full circle. But because of that, that's why I went to Berkeley. And that's how um, music synthesis, I thought I wanted to do uh, music production and engineering. But I learned you don't get to write your own music in MP&E. No, no, we did not. Right. <laughs> and I didn't want to record anyone else. I wanted to record me. So <laughs> there's a pattern here, you know? Totally. Um, right. And uh, so that's how I ended up in music synthesis, because it was still a production program, but it was also, it was geared towards your own composition and also music for picture, which in retrospect has been very handy for me over the years. Yeah, totally. So you were doing Sibelius stuff before you, uh, mu music notation for anybody that doesn't know Sibelius stuff before you even went to school. So yeah. you had a pretty good understanding of theory and I mean, traditional again, stuff. And I've been playing, you know, instruments since I was a kid. Yeah. And then of course, like singing a boy choir and, you know, you're reading off, I guess, pages and then, you know, piano and eventually guitar lessons too. And I took classical guitar lessons where you don't get to read tablature for that. Nope. So yeah, I mean, I, I've, it's something I've never really thought about because I've just done it my entire life. Yeah. Still to this day, it's like the joke, you know, how do you make the guitarist turn down? You put sheet music in front of them. It's true. And oh, that, I'm, I'm probably worse at reading music now than I was 20 years ago. <laughs> but it's just, I don't have to think about it anymore, you know? When you finished Berkeley, was it like solo artist? Was that the goal? I didn't know yet. Pretty much right out of school within, I want to say, two weeks of graduating. And I graduated in December of 07. I go home because it's Christmas break. Right. And or I guess Christmas, not really break because now I'm done, but I still had an apartment in Boston. And I had all my wisdom teeth pulled out, which was a very unpleasant experience. And I, <laughs> I remember I'm just like high out of my mind on Vicodin because that's what they give you after. Yeah. And I got a phone call from a producer named BT. And I had been referred to him from a, a mutual mentor at Berkeley. And that turned into ultimately, uh, you know, he invited me to come work for him, basically. And then I worked with him for a year. And then that turned into the uh, being into the dance music world a bit. Amazing. The, I can imagine 
the conversation that you had on Vicodin with a potential uh, employer. <laughs> employer. <because laughs> I remember getting my wisdom teeth taken out, and I was apparently like, you know, just telling the nurse that it was amazing and asking if I could come back for more. So I, I'm mm-hmm. sh- it's probably how you got the gig. Must have been. <laughs> like, stay in school, do drugs, clearly. No, um, but it, it was, uh, yes. but that's, that's actually how it happened, which is pretty funny. That's really good. So that, that was, um, that's how that ended up happening. And then, you know, with him, I, I worked on his album, These Hopeful Machines, and we worked on a, um, a Pixar short cool. and uh, a couple other things. And that kind of, um, after doing that for a year, I, I was ready to just be on my own. And I moved back to New York, kind of, and then actually Boston too. I did a year and a half long stint yet again in Boston. It was just East Coast back and forth. Yeah. Because I had friends and dance music. I figured, all right, you know, this seems like a, you know, this is an open door. This is an avenue. So why don't I give this a shot? And, you know, this isn't my favorite style of music by any means, but, you know, maybe I can use this to get some kind of acclaim and or whatever, build some kind of fan base and then leverage that into something else. And little did I know, once again, it was a very naive thought is, I mean, it's like the Godfather, you know, once you're out or, you know, they're always going to pull you back in. That's right. <laughs> and people don't like change, you know, like it, it, it's like if a Metallica went and then, you know, gave us or like right after the Black Album, then they release a classical record or a jazz record or something like yeah. that. It might be great. Doesn't matter. It's, you know, people want people want that inner Sandman. So uh, <laughs> that was a real learning lesson for me. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. How'd you get to L.A.? So you're going back and forth Boston to yeah. New York and stuff. So Right. So while, um, I guess, yeah, in those, between the ages of, I guess, like 22 and 26, because I moved out here right as I right before I turned 26, I, well, I guess I was doing some of the club stuff. And through that, Glenn Morrison called me out of the blue. I was aware of him because he was affiliate. He did, him and Deadmau5 did a bunch of records uh, back in like early, I guess like mid 2000s, um, 2007, 2008 or something like that. So Glenn calls me and um, I, I worked with him for, he had a, he had an agency for a minute that was like a production agency. So I worked with him basically uh, doing records with him as well as records for other people that he basically contracted and did that for a couple of years. And that was kind of actually what like kept me afloat for a bit. Also, then we started working on, he wanted to get into pop music. And that was something I guess I had a little bit more of a background in than he did. So, and he had a publishing deal with Sony. So uh, uh, Sony ATV in Toronto. So I started going out there and we started writing together for um, really every month. And one of those records became uh, the song called Goodbye that later went like multi-platinum and was like number one in Russia and, you know, was huge in Canada. It wasn't a drop in the bucket here in America. Like nobody knows it. But um, but internationally, it did pretty well. And between that and I guess also my the people who would become my managers later, they it was also a cold call, just a cold call email, just asking if... Uh, what my deal is. Do I, you know, am I represented by anybody or anything like that? 
at the time I wasn't. And I had just been in LA for the first time for a show, I guess, literally three weeks before that. And I had fallen in love with LA. I mean, it was just like the weather is incredible. And, you know, I've, I'd been in San Francisco before, but I had never been in LA. Yeah. And this was, you know, such a different, and it was like, I, it's intoxicating. So I remember like the night I got back from LA, I literally booked a ticket for the next month to go back and, you know, in like a worst hotel and you know, like a tiny motel in like the really, really ugly part of North Hollywood. Oh yeah. And it was 400 bucks round trip, including the hotel <laughs> but, um, for three days. Yeah. And um, ultimately Neil, who had become my manager, he, he reached out and just inquiring about my status, so to speak. Yeah. And he was based in LA and I, I said, you know what? I'm actually going to be there next week. Why don't we have lunch? So meeting with him, he had another client who was getting a lot of um, basically pop demo work and he didn't really want to do that kind of stuff. So they started funneling that to me. So I started doing all this demo work for like major label artists and right. that made its way over to Warner Chapel. And ultimately um, I met their VP of A&R who, at the time, Brad Ahrens, who he, and he was incredible and he, he gave me a publishing deal and I took the money and I just moved to LA and then in true Hollywood fashion, two months after I was here, Warner hires a new president and he was gone. And <laughs> that is how welcome, it works. Welcome to Hollywood. You know, can I, uh, can I jump in right here? Yeah. So your, your pop demo work, cause I know there's probably a lot of kids that would, you know, kill to figure out how to get a, a pub deal. The pop demo work you were doing, was that like work for hire stuff for him or were you getting a publishing cut as well? I mean, it was so early stages. It was, you know, here's something we're going to pitch to Lady Gaga. Here's a, here's an artist that we're developing that, you know, here's a vocal, see what you do with it. Here's this okay. Chris Brown thing. Like it was all very, I mean, it, it was all on spec. It wasn't. Okay. You know, so you were just making tracks based on stuff like rougher demos, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And they, they were giving me something to work with. Um, sometimes it was just a vocal and just writing something for that. And none of these, for the record, none of those demos like got cut or went anywhere. They never do. <laughs> no, but, but what they did do is they got me a pub deal. Yeah, because the right people were hearing them. Right, because I had a manager who was connected to that world. Okay. So that's how, you know, I got to skip the line of access, basically. I'm trying to track in my head. This is probably like 2008, It was 2012. 2012? Yep. Uh, this might sound a little like, uninformed, but I feel like DJs were all either jumping in or getting pulled into doing pop records or probably around that time. Yeah. Like 2010 yeah. to 2014. Mm -hmm. yep. Was that like in the, the DJ community, was that seen as an opportunity or was it sometimes like kind of like a, like a sellout type thing? Cause I don't, I don't know. Um, cause they cleaned up. I mean, they really influenced pop music for a yeah, good oh chunk of time. They, they still are. Yeah. I don't know, mainly because I think my, the people I knew in dance music really had nothing to do with it. Right. And they, they were mostly European. They weren't based in LA. The few American friends I had who were in that world, again, it was one of those things, it's an opportunity, it's an opportunity. Yeah. So it was just, you know, you, you take any work you can get. Yeah. I feel like I threw off your story. No, 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 no. I mean, that's, so all right, actually, so I'll pick it up. So I get to LA. <laughs> I'm stuck in a pub deal now without representation. And not the only one. <laughs> I, no, certainly not. And so I met an artist named Blake Lewis when I was working with BT a number of years before that. And Blake was the runner up on American Idol, I think in season two. 
he ended up living half a mile down the street from me when I moved to LA. So it was just one, and we were friends. It was like, dude, dude, whoa, let's make music together, you know? And so we did this. At, he had a friend who is a, um, a commercial director. And so he hired us to write the music for um, a Microsoft ad. Not a bad one. No, no, no. And it was, it was, not, it was the first time I think, you know, I got paid $5,000 to just, you know, produce the thing. And that was like a really cool thing for me at the time. I hadn't had something like that yet. And the song, ultimately, we did a, a full like single version of the song that wasn't just the 90 second ad version. And Blake ended up signing it to Universal Republic. And then that song went and like went gold and was ended up being like a pretty big pop track. So, I mean, ultimately, like between Glenn's Goodbye and Blake's Your Touch, I mean, that recouped my pub deal. Perfect. Nothing else I do ever like made a dent. But those two records, you know, they, uh, they, they cleaned it up. But then Blake and I basically, we just decided, you know, like, because I guess that's what it was. It was the single was successful and then Universal optioned him for an album. So we spent a year and a half writing and producing the whole record together. And that record was called Portrait of a Chameleon. And also in true Hollywood fashion, give them the record. And they're like, yeah, we don't want it. <laughs> we don't know what to do with this. <laughs> so it's like a oh, year and a half of your life doesn't matter. So doesn't he matter. put it out independently. And, and then uh, I, at the same time as doing that, I was also producing Tanya Zagars. Tanya is a, a Canadian artist and um, a very, very, I mean, she's very close to my heart now, but um, she she was an artist who I was introduced to just via friends within dance music. And she had done a bunch of uh, like featured singing tracks for some pretty big name artists back then. Yeah. So we started working together and she would come out to LA for two weeks at a time. And, you know, we would just kind of do her whole record and then I'd meet her. In, she's in Ottawa, but I'd meet her in Toronto and we'd go to a studio there. And uh, similar situation. It's funny. I mean, those two records, both Blake's and her record were basically started around the same time. And they also were actually completed just around the same time. On Tanya's record, I mean, I was, she wrote the songs and I produced everything by myself. So we were the only two people who worked on that record. Whereas Blake, Blake's had more collaboration involved. There was a lot more of like a writing, you know, like Nick Hexima 311 came in to like write one of the tracks once, which was really like surreal for me. And <laughs> I mean, it was a different world because, I mean, with the American Idol crowd, I mean, then it was like all the Idol people would just, and he lived with one of them too. <laughs> so oh, it was, yeah. It was really funny to be in that um, environment. And I mean, incredibly inspiring and great. And, uh, but anyway, so Tanya's record, we give it to her record label and they don't know what to do with it either. They wanted a, a club record and we gave them basically a, like a Imogen Heap inspired electronic pop record, which I mean, and I'm very, I love the, I think it's beautiful. I'm really proud of the work on it. And, uh, and I know she is too, but then the fucking record label held it for five years. Oh yeah. And they wouldn't release it. And then when they finally did, there was nothing. They, they, they actually put it out under, it won't even say the record label's name. It just says, you know, copyright Tanya Zagar, even though they released it. And they were just cleaning their hands of it. Oh, man. So it, I, I know it was, I felt so bad for her because um, it really, it really crushed her. I don't think people understand how often these things happen. Like you've kind of like hinted at it a couple times. Yeah. But I mean, having a record shelved by a new artist is like, unfortunately, very common. And when you're like a, you know, like a kid, like out of college, Maybe you got a little bit of hype and you sign a big deal and then your A&R guy gets fired because he got hired by the president that yep. got laid off because the numbers were down. Then all of a sudden, everything exactly. that that guy signed is not priority because nobody wants to worry no one about wants to someone inherit. else's failure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No one wants to inherit a red line. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. So, I mean, on my end, it was also totally deflating because, I mean, I'd also done some like pop music writing sessions that Warner had set up. Right. And none of those went anywhere either. Those are exhausting. Oh, God, I can't do it. It's just and they never they I, I, I want to write with my friends and I have enough talented friends that if I'm going to, you know, write with people, I'm going to just do it right. like that. I, I don't need to do the random like, hey, you know, we're going to get together and you know, just write something for this artist. I'm like, fuck that. I don't want to do it. Yeah, we got three hours. Right. And I'll tell you what, but like some of those songwriters go in and they can crank out a whole tune like that. And it's so amazing. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not saying there are people that aren't supremely talented at it. Totally. That, that's not my workflow. Yeah, I, I did um, years and years of uh, vocal engineering for writing okay. sessions. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen some just monster talent write songs. But like when I listen to them, like, oh, I just came from a session. I got another one at 8 p.m. I'm like, this it's, you're right? making me tired. And I'm only, I only have to do this session. You have to do two more. It's at 6 p.m. I'm so envious of them, though, because, I mean, some, you know, yeah, they'll do three sessions a day. They could write three songs a day. For me, like, I say I do, I write something with somebody. Then I have to live with that track for a whole week while I try to, you know, make it work. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And I was like, oh, you songwriter. I mean, and like songwriters get screwed in so many ways. But the ability to write 10 tracks in a week is not one of them. Yeah. Like, we don't have that luxury. No. No. Um, but yeah, so basically after like two records that I both thought were going uh, to actually, you know, carry some kind of uh, weight to them, both of them in the end went nowhere commercially. And all of the, and I still, you know, like I eventually like got inherited by somebody else at Warner, but it, it, everything that like, you know, I was supposed to be doing in LA didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I was like, you know what, I like this isn't working and I'm broke all the time and I'm, I'm just going to start only doing my own thing. And within one year of doing that, my income doubled. I was happy and I was yeah. almost doing what I wanted to do. And it was one of those things of like, this seems so simple, but wow, you know? Yeah. I want to tie that to an article that I saw or interview with you that had some great tidbits that I wanted to touch on. So mm. You obviously, you were looking for a shift. Do you feel like the excitement of being in Los Angeles and having the pub deal and doing this and meeting that, do you feel like that was distracting you from ultimately what you always wanted to do, which was make your music? Um, I don't know. I think it was certainly a diversion. Yeah. But I was, I was young. I mean, I, I was, it was new and I was just, uh, just find, trying to find my place, I suppose. Yeah. And, um, and you know, you, when you're in a new city, you try new things out. And on top of it, like, I do like songwriting. I like writing pop records. And, um, and I like, I like a lot of pop music, not all of it, but certainly, you know, when it's sophisticated, I, I really do enjoy it. So writing with people is truly something that I really enjoy. It just, uh, you know, <laughs> all the variables in the mix at that point in my life or, you know, they just, the stars didn't align for that role. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so I pivoted. Okay, so then when you make your pivot, was it energizing or kind of uh, frightening to just be like, all right, I'm going to drop all these things that I've been working at, I'm going to do, do me, and I'm going to do just me? Well, it wasn't frightening because the other stuff wasn't working. So <laughs> I had nothing true. to lose, you yeah. know? Like everything to gain, nothing to lose. And it's funny, so, but because of the stuff I had done before... I was at uh, Tony Maserati's Halloween party, I think in like 2014 or something like that. And I'm standing in line for the bathroom and this guy who I don't know, just, you know, 
who's standing in line behind me, just asks, hey, are you Matt? Yeah. Well, I really like your music. Uh, I work for a movie trailer company. You ever do trailer music? You should do it. And I'm like, no, what? Well, uh, here's my card. You know, let's, uh, you know, let's meet next week. That's good. I've been working in trailer music ever since. That's amazing. And suddenly that was, that was a big turning point too, because I mean, I had always wanted to work in film. And actually one of the things I, I did, that's true. Actually, I forgot about this. I did score this film. It was like a Fox digital film within the first year or two I was out here. And that was cool. Cause suddenly I got to go to like the Fox pictures a lot and, you know, eat lunch next to Seth Green and whoever else. And it was all very weird. But um, <laughs> besides that, I, I like, I really was cut off from Hollywood. And uh, so suddenly working in movie trailers was uh, a huge change for me because I mean, financially it's good yep. and it was actually kind of fun. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still, when I get a, a brief that they say we need it in 12 hours and it's 10 PM at night, like that, that's so disrespectful. You could have sent this to me at any time. And instead you chose me 12 hours before the things due at night, which means you originally had someone else do it and they screwed it up. So you need me to fix it. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. As like, I really like the fact that we can work from home is not positive all the time because they know it now. Yeah. Yeah. It's like studio hour. No, everything shuts down at 6 p.m. Sorry, you got to wait till tomorrow. Right. <laughs> yeah. That, that's not how it works anymore. Trailers is, is interesting and it's something nobody on the show has talked about. Can you elaborate on that world for people? Sure. Um, yeah, it, it's definitely a whole different world and a world I knew nothing about till I got here. But usually the trailers are not cut by the studios that make the picture itself. Right. With the exception like Disney does their own. For the most part, it's third party trailer companies who are then licensing music and then also sound design. Sound design was really my specialty. Yeah. From other third parties who are then taking it from different artists. So it's, uh, there's so many people in the chain. So, I mean, yes, I, I have had sound design and, you know, stuff like, yeah, like you said, you know, the Fast and the Furious movies and Pirates of the Caribbean and whatnot. And I feel totally disconnected from it. I have no idea. Like, even if I listen to the trailer, I might not even hear it personally. Right. It's pretty funny. But I just know <laughs> I'll get it. I'll get a statement. And I'll see, like, you know, these different things. I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. But it's never like, wow, I got Mad Max. It's just, huh. <laughs> but you do a lot of that work without seeing the cuts, right? My yeah. understanding is that they don't even really send out the trailer. You're getting like a description. Sometimes, sometimes they do, but usually, um, usually you get a description. And trailer music by nature is super formulaic. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, everything. It's two and a half minutes. It follows three acts. I mean, it's like a little miniature movie, actually. If you think about like the way a movie is three acts. I mean, you got your intro, then your second act is you know where all the fun happens, and then the third act is you know finale. So knowing that you just ultimately, especially if you're writing a musical cue, not a sound design cue, then um, you just, you basically get a brief that says, you know, we want it to sound like this. And the briefs are always ridiculous where you said it's supposed to be the most ex like exciting and insane sounds like we've never heard before, but we also really want it to be familiar and humble and sweet. <laughs> I, I was like, what? That's Again, this like, who writes these things? Clearly not musicians. <laughs> But so that's the basis of trailer music. And then what oftentimes they actually cut the trailers to the music. So okay. that's often why um, you don't. But there have been times where where I've gotten um, the roughs of trailers and um, which is different because like when you're doing a commercial, you usually have the commercial. Yeah. But yeah, um, 
but with the trailers, not so much. You mentioned music cue versus sound design cue. So you're doing sound design work in those three. Like, what's your difference there? This is I don't know for this one. This one isn't for the audience. Yeah. So sound design work is typically library work. So okay. I would go and I would make, you know, sixty samples once a year or something like that. And then those would get sent out to the music editors or the trailer editors, and they would use them and license them. Okay. Versus then writing, say, a custom cue. Right. And then that's a that's a totally different thing. Okay. So sound design was always library stuff for the most part. Although sometimes you would get cues that they want the cues to be sound design based, but then you're still basically almost composing with sound design. Ah, uh, okay. I got, I got yeah. you. So you're getting statements like they use your swoosh and your three booms and then your rumble on this right. trailer. Okay, I yeah. understand now. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's all confusing. <laughs> and it's all buyouts too. You know, no publishing, nothing like that. It's yeah. just, it's just uh, but then that, that became a part of my life. And then uh, around the time I hit 30, I decided I no longer really wanted to, like, I, I just, I guess I found that the music I was making wasn't, as true to myself as I wanted it to be. And I was still doing a lot of this, you know, dance music stuff. Yeah. And my heart, it's in, it's in rock. Like that's, you know, rock and metal and, you know, I guess, and like ambient electronic music. Yeah. So that's when I started really changing my own artistic output into more of those styles. And I started releasing everything myself. And a big part of that too was so I owned my masters because what I learned with working in, you know, the trailers and stuff like that, was that if I owned it, then I could license it or I could assign the master rights to a trailer company or a music library and then they could handle it. Yep. And I didn't care about selling records because no one was making money off Spotify at this point. So like I didn't, there was no reason to have a record label. Yeah. So I started doing everything indie. I went through a period where I like totally scorched earth. I, I fired my manager who um, I had been working with for the five years I'd been out here, my lawyer was gone, my booking agent was gone, like everything started totally like from scratch again. Started a podcast because I needed to feel connected to the world and uh, then started writing this more, I guess, like industrial rock-esque kind of stuff. And after a year of doing that, my manager who represents me now, his name's also Matt, uh, again, cold call out of the blue and we've worked together ever since and it's a you know a very different thing where it's really a partnership as opposed to you know being one of you know a bunch of different clients and you know there was like star clients and and this one that's not really the case which is really nice then having him to really like because he was all about let's do everything indie and it's it's changed you know just the fact that we have we wouldn't be able to do isolated without being able to be totally independent and having like a really good distributor and just being able to be like we're very nimble yeah, and, um, and really streamlined. I mean, it's just, you know, unless we have to hire a publicist or, you know, bring on someone else for something here and there, it's with the exception of, you know, different kinds of agents for different things. It's just the two of us doing everything. Oh, cool. It makes life so easy because we can just talk about it on the phone and then just move. Yeah. There's, yeah, it's, and then, you know, cause I still, I still deal with Warner and, you know, move like working with, you know, any kind of, you know, major, like it takes a long time because, you know, just, you know, there's a lot of hierarchy there. Yeah. It's really nice just to have a partnership where we can just make decisions and just move. That's that makes cool. life. That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I think, uh, well, the other key part is that you found a person that really believes in what you're doing and you guys are on the same page. Yeah. You know, it's, I think a lot of people get stuck with a manager early in their career that 
maybe, you know, the difference is there's some people that go out and look for a manager yep. and they find one that's probably not a good fit, as opposed to, in your case, both of these people came to you. They I wanted think, to work with you. Yeah, I, I've found traditionally, because I've had three managers at this point, maybe four, they have all come to me directly. It's so silly, but like you want people to chase you. And if they chase you, that means they're interested in you. If you're going after them, then you know there's not a whole lot of uh, desire necessarily. Yeah. yeah. So no, definitely I found as an artist, I mean, it's it's better typically when when they choose you. But on top of it, just because you're chosen by someone doesn't mean it's a good fit. I had fits that, you know, were not good. I had fits that were, you know, good at first, but, you know, you just grow. I mean, it's like a relationship, you know, you just grow in different ways. And actually, like when I split with um, my manager, Neil, who I had for five years out here, it really felt like a breakup. Like it was it was pretty emotional for me. Because, you know, this is someone who's such an important part of your life and they they really, you know, run your career. Yeah. So it's a really, that's a powerful thing. And so I'm so fortunate now that, I mean, Matt is the best relationship I've ever had with any manager. And I mean, it's, and it's more, it's, it's, fr it's a friendship as much as it is now a business relationship. Having that kind of relationship with the person who really is the brains behind your operation is, uh, God, it's worth its weight in gold. I mean, that if you know if you're fortunate enough to find that it changes your career oh yeah for yeah. sure it's rare though i've even run into a couple artists that like they're one of their closest confidants is kind of their creative director like mm -hmm. for these these projects that are very about the brand and it's like it's yeah. really like one person making music and one person really envisioning like what the the thing is and yeah yeah i think it's important to find whether it, what wherever it is it's super important to find a partner in that stuff. Mm -hmm. Before we go, I wanted to touch on in just in the random Googling prep that I, I tend to do that sometimes is helpful and sometimes not. Sure. I ran into this interview and there was a quote in there that caught my oh eye because it was like right at the top. And you said, or you typed, or however it went down, do it the hard way. I promise you it's worth <laughs> the extra effort, right? You probably saw this coming. Oh, uh, it was Music Radar or one of those or yeah, yeah, yeah. Music or something like that. But um, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about your workflow and like what made you become that type of person that's like, I'm going to go the extra mile to make the original creative sound or I'm going to win these people over because I'm going to go, you know, way further than anybody else. Like where, where did that come from in your life that that's like so key for you? I mean, it's interesting because I'm really competitive by nature. Like I, I always, even when I was a kid, like I want to be the best at baseball and I want to be the best at, you know, clearly I'm not the best at guitar. So I gave up on that one. But, um, but I, I was like, wow, I, you know, in like, I could be theory, I'm saying this quotation, people can't see it obviously, but like, I could be the best at this. This is something that I just naturally got really good at. And that was basically like my, I guess my style of production. And when I was younger, I was so driven by like showing off technique and stuff like that. And I was more driven by that than I was even by the song. And as you get older, you realize none of that stuff matters at all. And it's all about the song itself yeah, and the yeah. melody. But consequently, I mean, I, I spent so much time really like refining just my production techniques and doing it. Like I don't, like I never used plugins to do things. Like, sure, I'll use a delay plugin, sure. But even actually, it's half the time, I'll just like make a delay. Like, if it's an effect, I'll just do it with Audio Suite. Then I can have, you know, control over every individual tap and I could, you know, pitch one tap up and reverse a different, you know, it's all kind of stuff that, I mean, I always found that doing things manually as opposed to an automated process, you have so much more control. 
and I also, I work entirely in audio. I'm like, if I'm mocking up a string arrangement or something like that, yes. I mean, there'll be MIDI for that. And if I'm sending MIDI to like an outboard synth, sure, MIDI, but everything is audio at the end. Yeah. So I'm doing everything by hand and it really, it changes. It's just having that level of control. When you have that level of control, you can literally do anything and you don't have to make compromises. Yeah. There's also the, the, like the happy accident in the, um, you know, those moments of like bumping something mm-hmm. on the modular that, you know, getting a totally. crazy sound that you would have never had. You, I can see a modular in the background. Yeah. Do you start a lot of ideas that way? Get I, some I weird to. going? Um, not as much as I used to. Like there were, there was a number of years where like that was the basis of everything. I mean, I even had a EP out called Patchwork that was entirely like every track on that was basically like an etude of a module of like learning how this module works in and out. And, um, Now it's, I mean, I still use it. It's not that I don't by any means, but it's not the first thing I go to usually. I mean, I'm, I love guitars, man. I really do. Like, just give me a guitar and a delay pedal and a reverb and like, I'm happy. Nice. Or just, or a really like heavy fuzz pedal. And that's just, you know, that's where I just feel at home. But so a lot of my work really starts either at a piano or a guitar. But then there are times where say I do turn on the modular and just messing around suddenly you know because the modular is just such a wacky instrument oh yeah that you know you come up with some sound some texture some timbre that you'll never be able to recreate it ever so it's just like record this thing now and then that becomes the entire basis of a cue or a track or something like that and it's just you know it's the ultimate happy accident machine yeah i mean they're they're incredible yeah no it's it's i i know nothing about it I really, I really want to buy a bunch of modules, but I know that they'll just like sit around. I'll never actually know how to use it. But I'm, I'm such like a a modular noob. I think I was, I think it was Richard Devine that I was following on uh, Mm -hmm. Instagram. Yep. And uh, he, somebody had commented, you know, he's got like rack modules everywhere for people that Mm -hmm. haven't seen it. And somebody asked like, how do you know how they all work? And this is like, this blew my mind. And you're just, you're going to laugh at me and probably like get off the Zoom call. And his answer was, this is like four different patches. He's like, I have this. Yeah. This is a sound I made over here. And this is a sound I made over here. And my mm-hmm. mind was blown. I was like, oh my God, there's yeah. multiple. Because you, when you see it all, you're like, oh, there's so many things in there. But yeah, then you forget, like I use analog outboard gear. It doesn't all have to go yeah. on the same thing. Right. And uh, anyway, so that's my story. My well, embarrassing modular story of like. Oh, I mean, well, it's funny you brought up Richard because years ago, um, before I had a module, I remember chatting with him about this and uh and richard is one of the most inspirational like inspiring people i've ever met in my life like every time like i've had a conversation with him i just like leave like my mind has like their synapses that have been connected that didn't exist before it's amazing but he said the difference with a modular is it's like having a conversation as opposed to playing an instrument you're having a conversation with an instrument and what you put in isn't what you're going to get back but you're going to put something in, it's going to give something back to you, and then you're going to put something else into it, and it's giving you something back again. So it's a very fascinating workflow. That is really cool to think about it like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's ever since, like, I, I can't forget that because that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. Where does sound design, I know he does a ton of sound design, where does sound design fall into, like, your yearly workload? Do you do a lot of, like, preset patch design? and I, Some. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I do a lot of presets for Eventide. Okay. Just because they make such good stuff. I, I I'm the biggest fan of Eventide. So yeah. the fact that you know I get to use a lot of their stuff now is just. I mean, it, I I would be doing it anyway, but you know now I just don't have to pay for it, which is great. So, <laughs> uh, 
but I mean, I use it all. And like, I own every single one of their pedals. I've got an old DSP 4000 in the rack. I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm obsessed with the Eventide stuff and I always have been. So I do presets for them. I did some stuff for NI, like the bunch of presets for like the last guitar rig. Oh, cool. Uh, God blanking, uh, a lot of like beta testing on plugins and stuff like that. I'm sure you get um, sent stuff all the time. Yeah. Uh, not as often as I used to, yeah. I guess. Um, cause I'm a little bit more, I think behind, uh, behind the curtain now than I used to, mm. but maybe that's also cause it's a pandemic and I'm not on the road, which is fine by me. Yeah. And I used to do, yeah, like a sound design pack for trailers about once or twice a year that slowed down, but at least I still have, you know, six or seven packs out there that, you know, have their own life, but sound design mostly for me, um, it's just such a natural part of my own process. I mean, it, it's something that I, I create all my own sounds that when I write music, I'm making everything myself. So when I do sound design for somebody else, it's really the same thing I'm doing anyway. <laughs> somebody just asked you to do it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. Like, like, I was going to do it, it on Monday, but I'm sure I'll do it for you too. Right. But yeah. it's just like, I don't, and I don't even, I used to have days where I'm like, I'm just going to do nothing but a sound design day. Yeah. And I don't really do that anymore. Now it's just like, I'm right. And like, oh, I need this kind of sound. Like I better go make it. And. Or I'll just have weird moments where I'm going to go to Home Depot and, you know, the amount of instruments you can like, you can walk to Home Depot, spend 30 bucks and have like so many things to make noise with. Oh, it's yeah. incredible. It's you fun. Know, it's, it's so fun. So I got you know these little like buckets next to me and, you know, you put like a chain over the buckets, you start banging them with like a drumstick or actually like forks have been my favorite thing recently to use on things because they're like little metal mallets. Um but then that becomes inspiring because I just want to, I get in the process of just like hitting random things with different random things and getting these new textures. And then that goes through the blender and then those go through the guitar pedals or, you know, all the, the other outboard. And then, then they go into Pro Tools and they get like pitched down 48 steps and reversed and distorted and then sent back out of the box again. I mean, it's just a mess, but, <laughs> like, but this is just, and it all starts with like, yeah, I'm going to hit this little chain with this little fork, you know? And next thing you know, it's, you know, it's in the Godzilla trailer. I mean, that's just how this stuff happens. It's just... That's awesome. Yeah, it's wacky. I mean, it's totally like mad scientist, but that's... I get inspired by it. And the crazy, the weird sound design inspires how I write. So it's very much like it's also... It's similar to like that conversation kind of thing with the modular is the sound design ultimately influences what I write and what I write is going to influence the sound design. That's cool. I wanted to ask you one more question, which I feel like you probably just answered to some extent. But I was gonna say, okay. I was gonna say, do you have any advice for a kid that's like growing up in the age of technology, where he just has like basically every sound in front of him all the time? Yeah. Do you have something that you would tell them that you think they would not come to on their own, or not for like a decade or fifteen years of experience? Yeah, these days, um, pick up a real instrument. I like it. That's because I mean, everyone is in the box now. And you can hear it too. I mean, because I mean, even like you hear melodies now on pop records that clearly were downloaded off like a splice sample or something like that. Or, you know, it's just someone like ding, 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 or like clicking in notes and, you know, their piano roll or whatever. Learn music. Because on top of it too, like if all you're doing is just, you know, literally programming notes into like a piano roll and whatever software you're using, you don't know the joy of, you know, like that tactile response of, for it's like you're sitting at the piano and you just you feel like the sonic weight of it as it reverberates or just the way like the way you bend a note on a guitar it can be so emotional yeah 
real instruments are, or I mean, I bought a cello and I don't know how to play cello, but I found how to, I figured out how to do it. I have to auto tune it when I play it, but it works and it sounds better than a sample library to me because it's like real and it's got character. But the point is to me, it's like just, again, it, I guess it comes back to like do it yourself. But I mean, music ultimately should be emotional. I mean, yeah. music is emotional by nature. So why I, I think it's so important to, you know, have that emotional response with your instruments and some people sure maybe they get it out of software i just don't i need to i'm still very much like an analog man in a digital world and i need to i need to feel i need to touch what i'm creating yeah because that makes me more expressive and makes me more musical yeah you you basically described your workflow it's like the opposite of of the splice era everything completely. you do is completely original and you know purposefully accidental yeah if, if yeah that, that's a good way if that I, can I mean, be a sentence yeah, I mean, it's organized chaos. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Dude, this yeah. has been uh, this has been a ton of fun. I got one last question for you. You bet. And it's, you know, whatever you want to share. But what right now is your current big goal? And what's the f next smallest step you're going to do to go towards it? I want a film or a show. Um, that's really like a good one. Um, that's, that's my big goal. As um, a composer. Yeah. I mean, that's something I've been working towards really for... For quite a while now but uh, and then the pandemic threw a big wrench into everything and i started working with a film scoring agent about a year ago and so i started doing all this demo work for um various shows and films and uh then the pandemic happened everything got shut down and uh, <laughs> i mean then i did but that's also why i did the isolated record because i was just in this headspace of you know writing basically these very cinematic cues it is yeah it's good and that was part that's really directly influenced by the fact that i was doing a lot of that and it was funny because I was on the road. So I'd be like in three different cities on a weekend playing techno. And then I'd come home trying to write, you know, piano and like <laughs> and orchestral music and then going back out again. But uh, yeah, that's my my big goal right now is I, I want to film or a show. Cool. Yeah, that's ready for that stage of my career just to move in that direction as opposed to the uh, one man in a band on the road by himself. I don't yeah. need that anymore. Yeah. Do you know? Well, I guess you said you have a you have a film agent. Do you have a do you have a next move other than that? I mean, it's whatever comes in. You yeah. know, um, it's also a weird time. It's a bit, bit of a it, waiting game right now in this world. That's that's what it is. Yeah. You know, it is, and um, you know there are signs of life. Yeah, that is true. There are a lot more than there were six months ago. Mm -hmm. Right now, I actually I can't take anything on right now either. So if just between production work, uh, I'm working with a, a metal band right now doing production work on their record. And then I've got two records to mix also. Nice and. It's just like, so I'm booked until like the end of April, which is something that's very odd for me to say right now with the that's pandemic. Cool. But um, so consequently, if if something came in and, you know, it's really it would be really tough to do a demo on spec for something unless it was something that was like a David Fincher film. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, everything's getting put aside right now to do this. Yeah. So right now I'm just trying to get through my uh, my obligations right now. And then and then I have four tracks that I wrote with a singer, um, Denise Reno. So we've written a lot of stuff together over the years, but then she came and stayed for two weeks and that's turning into like its own little project. And uh, so I, now I have to go and like basically like fully produce these four songs. And then that's a, uh, it's a lot of work, man. <laughs> it's a, it is, it is a lot of work. Well, I think what our audience really needs to take away. And I, I think it really comes across is how massively passionate you are about music, but how like 
versatile and like educated you are as well. Like you really have a hand in a lot of different things. And I hope that people that are listening take note and realize that the more you know, especially in the modern world of music, the more opportunities there are that you can take advantage of. And you might find a career path oh, yeah. that you didn't know existed because you took a job that came across the table in a weird yeah. manner, you know? So it's funny, like actually, yeah. So I did, I did some production work on like the last 30 seconds to Mars record. And that was something I did. I didn't know anything about the band. <laughs> like I, I, I knew they existed. I knew Jared Leto was in it. And that's, that's like, it. you could, you could play me one of their songs. I wouldn't have known it, but they had reached out to my old managers that they were part of like a much bigger management company. And I guess they had, you know, Mars's manager had just sent out a thing like, you know, is anyone interested in, you know, working on this record? And I was like, I like rock music. Why not? This could be interesting. Yeah. And I had a blast. That's awesome. Like just, you know, working on and off for two years with those guys was so much fun. And that's something like I didn't do it for the money. The money wasn't good by any means. I did it because like I got to be part of a group for a part of time. And this is something that I never would have thought of ever. I never would have ever done. And I mean, I made close friendships out of that thing. And it was one of those moments of you never know where where the road's going to take you, I guess. And especially things that they seem so odd and random. Yeah. And and you learn something from everything. Like that is, I mean, even like working with them, like I, I thought it was a vanity band for all I knew because I didn't know. And then the first time I was ever like in, uh, I guess, doing vocals with Jared, it was like, holy shit. Like he's really good. And that was something like it blew my mind. Yeah. Because, you know, my own, you know, like preconceived judgment was like he's an actor he's just like doing this because yeah whatever right it's like no he's super passionate about music and he's quite good at it that's epic and it was one of those moments of just you know again like you don't know anything <laughs> it's just, yeah everything is just you never yeah everything changes it's amazing that's awesome Dude, yeah. this this has been uh this has been a really great hang. I really appreciate you coming on because uh Yeah, man. My pleasure. I, I love this. So hopefully, um I always say this, hopefully we can do this again or we can coffee when the world uh you know yeah. is functioning. Yeah, well again. yeah, you're you're uh, we're pretty close. Yeah. So, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Do you wanna uh do you wanna drop any websites or socials or anything with the audience? Um yeah, sure. I um I have a website, it's mattlang.net. I'm on every well almost i don't snapchat because i don't know how but um <laughs> but all the regular twitters and facebook don't do face i don't go on facebook whatever i'm a, i'm i'm out there um google that's the best way to get i guess where i am i have a new record that came out last year called isolated it was me chronicling basically my uh my existence during the pandemic and uh i'm very proud of it it's actually my favorite record i've ever done and certainly the most important to me so that's out. We actually did physical too. So if you want to buy a CD, you can do that. And other than that, that's uh, that's me. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks again. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, my pleasure, man. So that's it for episode 24. Thank you for listening. As usual, please uh, like and follow. Make sure you check out Matt Lang and his Instagram. Check his record out. And if you're not over at completeproducer.net, hanging out with us, join us over there. And we'll see you next week.